All right, today we're gonna to talk about the original investment commentary and the highlights um, that are on the Guru Investor blog for the week of February 19th, um, 2021. And to start, maybe I'll talk about my article that I wrote. Um, and the title of that article was What GameStop's Crazy Ride Can Teach Us About Investing. Our podcast this week is actually about this topic as well, but I sort of took a little bit of a different approach with this and I tried to just think about what happened with GameStop and what investors might be able to learn um, from what transpired in the market. And again, these are just, you know, some of my thoughts. It's it's some of this has to do with, you know, like longer term um, investing concepts, I would say. But, you know, I just tried to think through what happened and then try to come up with a few things that I thought investors could learn from. So the first point is that, you know, oftentimes stocks can get disconnected from their fundamentals. Um, and certainly with GameStop, you know, that's what happened. I mean, in April of last year, it was $4 a share. In January of this year, it reached $347 a share. And then all the different cascading effects that happened as a result of that. Um, the next point was, and this is, this is true. I, I sort of use GameStop as an example. I don't know if it was the best, but, you know, in, in the market and in, in, in index funds and just in portfolios in general, you know, a very small percentage of your positions can drive the vast majority of the return. So in the in the article, I had this chart that sh sort of shows a distribution of stock returns, and it was from 1997 to basically 2017. And what it shows you is that, you know, way over on the right tail, you have you know, a, 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 companies that are that are that go up thousands of percent, and a lot of times in the market and in indices or whatever, those are the ones that actually drive a lot of the market's returns over time. And I was just kind of using GameStop. It's it's not a great example, but you know, if you held it, obviously, and you sold it at when it got way up there, you know, clearly that position, you know, sort of dominated your returns. And actually on Validia, you know, right or wrong, fair or not, we had two models that picked up the stock, um, one in April and one in May, based on the fundamentals at the time. And those portfolios, you know, shot to the top of the charts in terms of our tracking of the performance. They've since kind of pulled back down because the stock has pulled back. But you know, clearly we had examples where because we the models had selected those securities, you know, it impacted the return so much because the stock was up like whatever, 8,000% or something like that. Um, next, I just talked about the changing market dynamics and I talked about the retail investor and how volumes have been surging here. And I highlighted a CNBC piece um, that showed how much volumes have really exploded over the last two years, largely driven by individual investors and retail traders. Um, the third point was, you know, don't really... You shouldn't be borrowing to invest. Stocks are risky, um, or if you do, you should understand the risks. And there was an example of you know this uh, this individual investor who borrowed money and uh, invested in GameStop and saw saw his investment go down quite significantly, um, which is too bad. And now he you know obviously owes uh, he owes the loan to the bank, so he's kind of on the hook for both. Um, he's taking a big loss and he has to pay back the loan. I talked about the value of information, which, you know, at some point along the way, the Wall Street Bets community and a couple of users or one user on the Reddit message board identified that the 140% of GameStop stock was sold short. So that sort of kind of was somewhat of a catalyst for this um, massive parabolic move higher as sort of the stock started to move and shorts had to cover. And that's something we talked about in the podcast. And then lastly, that, you know, nothing is really free. And I was just highlighting the fact that what this is kind of brought to the surface here is this whole idea of um, commission-free trading and payment for order flow. 
And so as most investors know, you know, because of Robinhood and all these other brokerage firms have kind of moved in this direction, this commission-free trading. But what my point here was is that it's really not free because what's happening is these brokerage firms are getting compensated um, for uh, uh, sending their trades to certain market makers who then basically can, you know, sort of take a small slice of those trades um, and actually make money on the trading between the bid and the ask. Um, and, and in those instances, it may not be, you know, that investors ultimately are getting best execution. So my point there was just, you know, nothing's really free. So that was my article. It was interesting. I, I want to write about it. I want to write about GameStop and sort of some of the lessons that I think investors could learn. And so that's what I came up with. Yeah, you know, my, one of my big lessons from GameStop is this whole idea that it's very dangerous in the markets to ever say something can never happen. You know, if you think about what was going on coming into before what happened with GameStop happened, you know, you had some of the most sophisticated hedge funds out there with sophisticated risk controls that had, had thought about every scenario and they didn't consider this one because, you know, other than getting bailed out, some, some large hedge funds would have completely blown up because of this GameStop thing. And so even sophisticated investors who are thinking through everything, who have the most advanced modeling possible, couldn't come up with this as a potential scenario. And this, this type of stuff happens all the time. You know, I, I remember in the late 90s, you know, when the market was kind of going past the greatest, the highest cape it had ever reached, you know, people said, oh, we just can't possibly have a higher cape than this because we never have before. And then, you know, the cape went 50% higher than it ever had before. And so I think that's a big takeaway of all this stuff is you have to understand that, you know, as much as we'd like to think a, the market returns are sort of what we'd call a normal distribution where, you know, both sides are kind of, you know, everything is kind of smooth. Events that would be, that would be, basically zero probability based on that type of analysis happen all the time. And so it's just important to think about, you know, what are my most extreme risks and am I set up to handle them? Yeah, good point. Um, what was our uh, podcast about this week? So our podcast, we followed up on my article last week and we talked a little bit more about risk. Um, and instead, you know, we, we had talked about how risk is very difficult to measure and how there's a many, many different ways to do it last week. And, you know, what we did here in the podcast is we took it a step further and started talking about some of the ways we use to measure risk. And, and we're an active manager. So the way we measure risk is different than other people. Obviously, if you're investing in index funds, our measures of risk aren't going to be that relevant. But what we talked about is we, we try to look practically, practically about how investors behave and what will cause bad behavior. And then we try to quantify those things and use them as measures of risk. So for instance, if investors behave, you know, investors will sell out when the market's down a lot. We'll look at the percentage chances of certain types of market declines in any portfolio we're building. And we'll tell someone coming in, you know, here are the odds historically that this type of thing has happened. And, you know, we can set somebody up where they're matched with a portfolio that's appropriate given those situations. Or when we run active portfolios, you know, we know all of those portfolios are going to have long periods where they underperform the market. But if you put a value and a momentum portfolio together, you can have a smoother return. And so one way to look at that process of combining them together is to say, when I combine these two portfolios together, what is the percentage chance that any in any given one year period, I'm going to underperform the market? Or what is the percentage chance in any three year period? Or, you know, what is the percentage chance that I'm going to be, you know, more than 10% behind the market in any one year period. And so you can look at these things that would cause an investor to abandon an active strategy and you can put probabilities on them and you can use those probabilities to construct portfolios. And so that's what we talked about. We talked about some more detailed ways you could potentially look at risk as an active investor. Yeah. And like we also talked about, I mean, risk is very hard to define. 
And, um, you know, probably the biggest risk is investors not meeting ultimately their goal of, let's say, being able to retire, being able to get to a portfolio of, you know, withdrawing 4% a year or something like that. So, you know, we tend to look at risk um, differently. We're not so much focused on like something like the sharp ratio or the standard deviation. It's much more about how do you construct a portfolio that is best for the investor that can help them best, um, you know, ultimately, hopefully meet their their goals and their uh, long-term um, in, uh, investment needs. So anyways, what was um, what article did you find sort of most interesting this week? A mine was from the CFA Institute website. It was called The Buffett Indicator Revisited Market Cap to GDP and Valuations. Um, and I think there's a couple interesting things about this. First of all, what they showed in the article is that market cap to GDP is sort of a blunt tool. It, it doesn't work in all, you know, first of all, it doesn't work all the time, but it doesn't work in all places either. You know, they use the example of Hong Kong, you know, where when a market has a lot of sort of foreign companies in its market, then the market cap to GDP is going to be completely distorted and useless. I forget what they said for Hong Kong, but it's something like 10,000 or something like that, just because they have a lot of foreign companies on their market. So their market cap is going to be much higher than their GDP. But also, I think, I think an important takeaway for all of these valuation indicators is they don't really tell you anything about what's going to happen in the short term. And I, I remember this was also happening in the late 90s, in the 96, 97 range. People were breaking out these kind of indicators to show just how overvalued the market was. And then we had a, just a massive run until 1999 when it all fell apart. And so it's important to understand that these indicators for your average investor, they might tell you something about, I should expect below average returns in the past decade. But they tell you absolutely nothing about should I, what should I be invested in, in the next one to three years, or is this market about to collapse, or anything like that. They they don't add any value in that area. They really are more of a tool to say, all right, the market has above average valuations. I should probably expect below average returns in the future, but it's not telling me anything about the short term. You must have been, or I must have been reading your mind because yesterday I tweeted from the Visual Capital Capitalist, um, sort of the Buffett indicator on the U.S. market, and basically where we're at today, we're at a, a market market cap value to GDP of 228%. And that's actually higher than we were in the um, internet and dot com sort of period. So certainly high. Uh, but, you know, like we talked about with Kai Wu, I mean, intangibles, you know, largely or to some extent aren't measured in GDP. And then someone commented on my Twitter feed too, that they were like wondering if, you know, more sticky corporate earnings, especially with like the largest companies in the market, like maybe that to some extent substantiates um, the higher ratio. I mean, I don't know, but you know, we're certainly very elevated to where we've been historically in the US market with, with the Buffett indicator. And the other thing is when you think about things like all time highs, you know, you have to also, you look at places like Japan and the Japan bubble. And so as much as our, we've had these bubbles in the late nineties and now, and you know, this may or may not be a bubble, but what Japan did was multiples of that. So, you know, even though the, the indicator is inflated, this could go on for a long time. Um, you just never know. Um, what was your article this week? So yeah, it was an article in Barron's. The title of the article was, um, uh, the title of the article was, after 10 years of underperformance, commodities are set to boom. Here's how to play the rally. It was by Andrew Barry, who I always enjoy reading. He's kind of, uh, speaking of Buffett, he's kind of like their their axe on Warren Buffett there at Barron's because he's, he's followed him for a long time. So anyways, he was highlighting, um, you know, just how a lot of institutions, Goldman Sachs, among others, are making an argument that, you know, now maybe after a long period of commodity underperformance, you know, uh, commodities might 
uh, look set up here for a pretty extended run. Um, and it's kind of the narrative that you would expect. I mean, you have very loose money supply um, and it looks like, you know, the Fed is going to continue to um, keep rates low. Um, certainly a lot of stimulus has come into the market and it looks like more is coming. Um, and, you know, it's sort of making the point that, you know, commodities oftentimes are used by institutions as a way to diversify and hedge out equity and bond exposure. And, you know, investors, individual investors may want to sort of consider that even in a green type of economy, you know, certain certain types of commodities, um, you know, are likely to see an increase in demand. And so it just highlights a couple, you know, basically was saying like copper, um, you know, energy, gold and silver, and then certainly agriculture. And I think if you look at the price of commodities, bring up a chart of like the most common, you know, commodities, what you're going to see is commodity prices are, uh, have certainly reverted higher here. And, and by the way, one thing that I, a risk, I guess I see is that, you know, if that, if those prices start to sort of come into products, then, you know, there's certainly a risk for some inflation here. I mean, the article, this is my own personal opinion. The article didn't really touch on this too much, but, um, you know, it, 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 you sort of have inflation, but actually commodities do well during inflationary times because the price of the commodities are, are going up. So I just, you know, I, I would imagine most investors are probably under allocated to commodities. And I think this article does a good job of making the case as to why maybe investors should be thinking a little bit differently um, about commodities in the portfolio. Yeah, one of the things all of us do is we tend to judge the possible outcomes based on the outcomes we've actually seen in our investing lifetimes. And so in thinking about a blind spot, like people of our, who came into the markets when we did, have is that we've never seen significant inflation. We didn't see the 1970s. And so we may discount the possibility that that could even possibly happen. You know, we've, we've seen low inflation for basically our entire investing careers. And so the, I think that the article is making a good point in that we all have to at least acknowledge the possibility that that type, maybe not that type of inflation from the 70s, but inflation beyond what we expect might happen. And that might that might cause us to have to be invested in different types of portfolios than what we've been invested in the past. And so I have no opinion on where commodities are going, but I do think it's important to understand that that type of market could come back. And, you know, your, your typical stock and bond portfolio may not do as well as people want it to in that type of environment. All right. So that's it for this week. We'll actually put links to all those articles and our posts in the show notes, you guys. Thanks for uh, checking this out. We'll see you next time. Thank you. If you'd like to keep up on the research, writing, and curation we're doing at Validia, please go to blog.validia.com to learn more and stay updated. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. Thanks so much. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.